Genesis chapter number four, we'll be getting there in just a moment. If you can believe it, it has been about a month since we were last in here talking about uh, what we want to talk about tonight. So it's been quite a while, so we're going to go through, um, not, I'm not going to re-preach what we preached before, but we're going to go through a little bit of a review, get us all fully up to speed so we can establish really what I want to talk about here uh, tonight. Uh, for the last several weeks and months, we've been engaging in a series called Biblical Theology, also subtitled Reading the Bible with an Emmaus Perspective. And really what we've been trying to do is establish what it means to have a biblical theology, what those terms mean, why they're important, and why everyone should be, quote-unquote, a biblical theologian. Uh, not just preachers, not just scholars, not just people in the realms of academia that are training other preachers or missionaries or whatever. Actually, every Christian, every believer sitting in pews or chairs like we are tonight uh, should, I would say, be a biblical theologian. Uh, we've spent some time kind of establishing that. Uh, we were in Second Timothy chapter 2 where Paul talks to Timothy and tells him that one of the things that should define his ministry is is, quote, rightly dividing the word of truth. Uh, and that phrase is such a powerful and actually very provocative phrase, just in the sense of rightly dividing, literally means cutting straight this word of truth that we have, this Bible that we have in front of us. And you can imagine as Paul is, is, is commissioning Timothy to that charge, uh, what books of the Bible is he talking about? Well, he's talking about the ones that we would call the Old Testament. Much of the New Testament hadn't been written or hadn't been canonized by the time that Paul had written that. But regardless, he's giving Paul, or he's, excuse me, he's giving Timothy a commission to do nothing else but take this word, rightly divide it, cut it straight, and of course, Whenever you cut the Bible straight, you will always be greeted with one particular theme. It's a theme that also we have been spending time sort of developing, but also noting how important it is and how foundational. Of course, that theme is just Jesus. Uh, that's not being too reductive. It's not being too simplistic. As Jesus reveals himself on that road to Emmaus, and one of my favorites chapters of the Bible, Luke chapter 24, he talks to those two disciples and he makes it very clear that what? All of the Bible, he says, concerns me. Uh, Luke 24, 27, where it talks about how uh, starting with Moses, Jesus showed them all the things concerning himself. And later in John chapter 5, of course, he he tells and, and testifies and, and proclaims that all of the scripture bears witness about me. That's what the Bible's about. It's, it's a, an amazing story, if you will. And that, that might sound too flippant, but indeed the Bible is a story. It's not a collection of stories. It's one story with a bunch of different phases that it goes through, with a, a bunch of different eras of history that is revealing this story. Of course, the story is the revelation of the way in which we sinners are made to be redeemed, how we are made to be rescued from the haunts of sin and darkness. And that's the amazing thing is that 
God has providentially sort of made this story there from the foundations of the world. He's inserted himself and he's been always inserting himself and making it known that this has always been the story. This has always been the case. This has always been the theme. The Bible, as we've established, is an authoritative narrative all about how God, the Father, has put into motion the only means by which every sinner finds salvation through him. That's kind of what's happening. You can see it from the very beginning as we're going to spend some time doing this evening. But that's, that's the amazing point, right? Is that the Bible's primary point really has nothing to do with you or me. Uh, that's one of the things why uh, we, we've, we've shown like uh, how this, uh, how biblical theology, what it is, is this overarching story of the Bible that always reveals Jesus and why that's important, why that's important for the church. It, it protects the church's doctrine. It protects the church's family. It shows the way in which the church ought to grow. Ephesians 4, we are growing up in every way into Christ. Not into some other thing, not into some other sort of mode of thinking or whatever. It, our growth together is growth into Christ. The, the further that we go, the, f- the longer that we are cutting this word of God, the more we're going to be finding ways in which Christ reveals himself in so many profound ways. And of course, yes, we've established that the, the, the Bible has applications to you and to me, things that, uh, that changes the way we live. But the primary, fundamental, and prevailing application of all of the Bible is not about you and me, it's about Jesus. It'll always be about Jesus. That's what he's revealed. That's what he's shown. And we've tried to be patient in demonstrating this. And, and perhaps you, would, you might think that we're beating a dead horse, but I, I don't really think so. This is something that I think is so, uh, so incredibly important for, the, for where we are as a church. And by that, I mean by the church sort of universal, uh, lowercase c, Catholic. <laughs> um, that's, by the way, what Catholic means. It means kind of universal. The Romans kind of took that term from themselves when, anyways, it doesn't really mean that. Anyways, regardless, um, the church universal, so all churches across the United States, across North America, across the world, uh, we are in a really interesting moment um, with, uh, and I'm, I'm going to try not to get like too sidetracked, especially because I don't have a lot of notes written on this, so I don't want to get myself in hot water, but there's a lot of stuff going on in the world, wouldn't you say? <laughs> a lot of things that we can be distracted by, uh, a lot of wars and rumors of wars and conflicts and, and all kinds of scandals, and uh, by the way, that's kind of always been the case. This is not, uh, in a, this is not an entirely, quote-unquote, 2023 thing. This is just a thing that has always been the case. There has always been things that have, uh, that have come about in the world, on the global scene, that have always done a really good job at distracting the church from its primary message. If we are spending our time talking about other things other than Jesus, the church is failing in its message. The church, as a body of Christ, is called to do what? To witness to one thing. To Christ alone. What did Jesus command the disciples right before he ascended? Be witnesses of me. <laughs> in Jerusalem, in Samaria, in Judea, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. That's what he told them. 
He told them on the, on the Mount of Olives, the, in what is often called the Olivet Discourse, remember as he's telling them about future events and there's all kinds of things that are coming for you, he says. And at the end of it, what does he tell them to do? Remember they ask him, hey, what are, when is all this going to happen? What are the signs? How are we going to know? He says, don't worry about it. All I want you to know, or all I want you to be concerned about, he says, is to watch and to pray. And indeed, I think... That is very telling for us as the church because regardless of what season of life we're in, regardless of whether all around us is chaos and commotion or calm, which usually it's the former and not the latter, regardless of what that looks like, we still have only one message. We still only have one person that we are called to witness to, and it's the person that is everywhere revealed in scriptures. It's Jesus Christ alone. And this is why, the reason why I say this is so important is also because um, we, we showed some, and maybe I'll show some again, I don't know, because sometimes I think it can be too distracting when you see those clips of preachers and they are preaching just off the wall things and it makes you laugh, but then it also makes you sad because there is a whole, whole congregation full of people who are cheering on these horribly blasphemous things that are coming from so-called preachers, and it makes me sad that people are being deluded by something that is not truth and that is not Christ, not only just not Christ-like, but is not honoring Christ in the slightest. And again, this is why... This is why I think this is so, so incredibly important for our moment. We started this series by indicating why this is important. I took you to that survey. I'll just mention it again. So it's been a month since we've talked about this. Um, the uh, the um, um, now I'm blanking on what it's called, but it's a theological survey that a bunch of different sort of uh, Christian groups put on every single, or they put it on every two years. Uh, so we're coming up on one in 2024, actually. Um, the State of Theology, that's what it's called. Um, and they ask a bunch of questions to a bunch of different people from a bunch of di- different demographics, both religious, non-religious, old to young, and everywhere in between. And the one that always stands out to me is what people think about the Bible. Um, whether they, the question or the, 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 the phrase is stated, the Bible is a collection of myths, but it's not entirely true. Or something like that. It, it runs something like that. But essentially, it, there, that there's parts of the Bible that are true, but there's parts of the Bible that are not true. That's basically how the, the phrase is, is stated. And essentially, almost half of the United States believe that that is indeed the truth. That not all of the Bible is true. That there's a lot of myths in it. There's a lot of fairy tales in it. There's a lot of fiction that is included in the pages that we have in front of us. And unfortunately, uh, about 38% of that number was also, quote-unquote, evangelical Christians that would make up our United States. Which again tells me what? We don't really know what our Bibles say. Or more than that, we don't know what they're supposed to say to us. The Bible is a very important book, and not because it reveals all of these morals or not because it has all of these incredible prophecies, even though that's true. The Bible is important because it shows how through all of the course of time, God has implanted into the fabric of our creation one incredibly important theme. It's the theme of redemption through God's own Son. That man cannot work his way into a right standing with God, which is what we spent a lot of time this morning talking about. We can't. 
It's impossible for us to work our way back into a right standing with God. And so what's the answer? Well, God tells us. All throughout 66 books, he shows us what that answer is. And it starts very, from the very beginning of this book. From the very beginning of the Bible. Because I think that's a really important thing to note too. Is this theme of Jesus just a theme that pops up as soon as Matthew chapter 1 starts? And some people would agree with that. They would say that, you know, there's a God of the Old Testament and he's grumpy and mean and he's angry all the time. And then there's a God of the New Testament. He's, he's merciful and kind and loving and just all fluffy and everything. And they drive this wedge between the gods of the Old and the New Testament. And, and indeed, I want to tell you, and perhaps you know, but again, reemphasize that there is, there's only one God of both Testaments. Of, we have one God, one faith, one Lord, one baptism, as Paul says. But really, I want to show you from the very beginning, this God has always been a God of redemption, a God of reaching out to people that don't deserve his grace and giving it, the, giving it to them anyways. That's always been a pattern. And I think it starts right here in Genesis chapter 4, because this has been the point from the, the very beginning. And you're perhaps really familiar with this scene that's in front of us, the scene of, of Cain and Abel, the scene where Cain murders his brother. Abel. Notice verse 1. Now Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. So the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother and his brother Abel and killed him. This is that scene that perhaps you first heard back in Sunday school with those flannel graphs and all that kind of stuff. I remember those, and I remember hearing the story once upon a time. This is a quote-unquote tale as old as time, and it's often fraught with a lot of questions that pop up from, a, from the very beginning. Why exactly did Cain kill Abel? And also, why was Abel's offering accepted and not Cain's? What's going on here? Why is there this dichotomy? Why is there this different regard for Cain and for Abel? Well, in very, very simple terms, this whole fiasco that starts right here in Genesis chapter 4 is a result of a failure to keep in mind the word of God. And if you'll allow me to say this, I think this whole little fiasco indeed is a failure of biblical theology, if you will. And I, 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 I don't mean to just shoehorn that in because we're talking about it. I really believe that that's what's happening here. And what do you mean by that? Well, I'm glad you asked. Um, this whole scene is about worship. This whole, this whole little uh, scene that we have here between Cain and Abel and what they're doing, it's all about 
worship. The phrase that you might have seen where it says in the course of time in verse number three is a phrase that is suggestive of a, of a very divinely appointed time of worship. It's not just in one day it happened. It just it literally quite means um, that in a very specific time, they were here and they were offering uh, these offerings before the Lord. It's sort of reminiscent of the Sabbath. Back in, in chapter number 2, uh, verses 2 and 3, where it talks about the Lord resting from all the work that he did. Indeed, you might, we might insinuate here from just this that they are bringing these offerings to the Lord on the Sabbath. It's something just we could say that they regularly did. These two sons of Adam, if you will, Cain and Abel, they're approaching the Lord in order to worship him. And even though it's not explicitly stated, there's no verse that says this, but it's something that we can infer from the text. It's clear that they were told to do this by their parents. It's not just like they were, they knew about doing this before or, or just when they were, you know, little lads or whatever. They're being told, they're instructed to bring these offerings before the Lord by their parents, Adam and Eve. And some commentators have even sort of suggested that this that this place that they're going to is uh, this place of worship that they're arriving at with these offerings was perhaps even the very same place that's being guarded by the cherubim back in verse 24 of chapter 3. If you remember, Adam and Eve are expelled out of the garden, out of what? Out of the presence of the Lord. Because of their sin, because of their, the curse that is now upon them. And now that place that was like the temple, it was like a living embodiment of God's presence, the Garden of Eden. They're expelled out of that and is being guarded by two, uh, two armed cherubim. And some have suggested that this altar that they're offering these offerings on is sort of at that entrance Why? Because what is worship all about? It's all about reclaiming and reorienting ourselves back into right relationship with the presence of God. And where else to do that but at the place where they are expelled? Whatever the case, that may or may not be true, but regardless, I think it's a good image. Whatever the case, Cain and Abel, they're well aware of what is required of them. They're well aware of what this offering was supposed to be, what it was supposed to, what it was was supposed to look like, and what they were supposed to do at this time, at this place, the time and the and the place, and on all of these means of communing with the Lord. It's well known to them. They're not ignorant of the things that they were supposed to do in this place in order to commune with God, because again, that old way of communing with the Lord that's over. Cain and Abel. They were only told about that communion and about that fellowship that Adam and Eve had with God himself. They were told that in stories, right? You can, you can imagine what Adam and Eve could have told them about what they used to enjoy, what they used to relish in. Can you imagine the stories? And now here they're being told the way in order to experience that in part is by making these offerings before the Lord. So they both come to this place, a proper place, at a proper time, in order to worship the Lord properly. Again, verse 3, in the course of time. Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. 
And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portion. So Abel comes with this offering from his own flock. He's a shepherd. He's a herdsman. He's, a, he's one who knows his way around animals, around lambs, so to speak. And he brings, as it says, a firstborn lamb as this offering that he's going to make on this altar. And this is in contrast to the offering that Cain brings because he comes bearing an offering from his own labors. That's sort of the point, right? Where it says in verse 2, Cain was a worker of the ground. And notice, Cain brought to the Lord an offering from the fruit of the ground. It's literally the fruit of his own labor. That's what he's bringing. And that's why we have this difference of regard. Because God is accepting of Abel's offer. Why? Because he, and he, because Abel's offer is not from his own labors. It's from this flock that God has blessed him with. Whereas Cain's is from the fruit of the ground. It's, it's something that he has worked for. And that's sort of what I want to show you. Because God's not being petty. God's not just being, uh, today I'm going to honor Cain's and or I'm not going to, or I'm, I'm going to honor Abel's and I'm not going to honor Cain's today. And that's what started this whole thing. No, it's very specific what's happening here. Um, again, as we just noted, Cain's offering is, is an offering from the fruit of the ground. Which, uh, this is just really simple, but if you have fruit and you're having all of these vegetables, you're having all these crops and you're burning them on an offering, what don't you have? <laughs> You don't have blood. And that's a, a really rudimentary observation to make, but it's actually a really important observation to make. Because if there's no blood, what do you only have? You only have the leftover pulp from a harvest that he tilled, that he worked for. And that's sort of the second point, that this offering that he brings is things that he's cultivated, that he's collected. He, being a tiller of the ground, enters the presence of God with an offering from the fruit of his ground, from the fruit of the ground, his own labor, his own work. So therefore, we can understand why God had no regard for Cain's approach, why he didn't accept Cain's offering, because he was basing it on what he did. On what he was doing. On things that he had accomplished. And this is why God turns his back on Cain. Because Cain was attempting to worship God on his own terms. And again, by way of contrast, what is Abel doing? Abel, to a certain degree, understood what true worship was about. How do we know this? Well, jump ahead. Go with me. I want you to see some of these verses here. Go to the book of Hebrews. Go to the Hebrews chapter number 11, where Abel shows up again in that wonderful chapter that we often refer to as the Hall of Faith. Notice what it says in verse number 4. Hebrews 11 verse 4 says this, By faith, so therefore we automatically have that Abel is not approaching God according to his own uh, sort of merits, and uh, uh, according to the things that he has been able to till and cultivate and harvest. He's not approaching God by his own works. He's approaching God by faith. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his 
gifts. And why was his more acceptable? Why was Abel's more acceptable? Again, because it involved blood. If you go to Hebrews chapter 9, look at verse 22. I want you to see this. The writer of Hebrews makes this amazingly powerful point. Hebrews 9.22, notice what it says. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. That's an amazing, important phrase. Without the shedding of blood, no forgiveness. No sacrifice, no forgiveness. You can't offer things based on what you want to offer and expect God to treat you the same way that he has commanded. You might say, well, Pastor Brad, this is before the law. That verse says under the law. Well, they're still offering to God offerings in accordance with what God has revealed way before the law. It's not indicative of just something that God has revealed in the law. It's indicative of who he is. That this intrusion of sin demands what? It demands a penalty to be paid with blood. And here from the very beginning, Abel, even however feebly, he knew that his own sin demanded a sacrifice. Therefore, he brings, going back to Genesis chapter 4, the firstborn of his flock, and like would be done throughout the ages of history after him, a lamb's uh, throat would be slit, and that blood would spill over that altar as what? A very unmistakable sign that he, though he deserved to die, this innocent sacrifice was dying in his stead, was dying for him. This is happening right outside the Garden of Eden, if you will. And when that lamb's blood poured over that altar, it was an unmistakable, visible testimony that the penalty of death was being taken by someone else, was being paid for on his behalf by someone else. And again, this is what encapsulates Abel's worship and Abel's hope. That the blood of Another would cover all of his sins and all of his shortcomings. And then, when this disregard happens for Cain's, and the regard happens for Abel, Cain gets all mad and he murders his brother, and then we have a series of murders after that. Why? Because sin always results in death. But the point I want you to see from this very beginning section of worship and rightly getting into communion with God is asking this question. Who taught Abel about worshiping the Lord this way? Who taught him how to bring a lamb and sacrifice it before the Lord in order, and to do so by faith, in order to uh, sort of uh, reclaim that right relationship with God that had been broken? Of course, it's not a hard question. His parents did. Adam and Eve taught him about this. Adam and Eve, you can imagine, we don't have a verse that tells us this, but we can infer from the text that Abel and Cain were being taught the right way to worship God. And we have to ask then a follow-up question. Where did Adam and Eve learn about this? Where did they first learn that blood covers sins? We'll go back to chapter number 3. I love this verse. Chapter number 3. The chapter of the fall that is often called, the chapter of 
the curse being laid upon the man and the woman, and of course the serpent. And so after God uh, spends all of those verses, giving them all of what's going to come, all of the repercussions, all of the consequences of all of their actions, notice what happens. Verse 21, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Bam, right there. Skins of animals. So before they exited the garden for good, because of sins that they committed, what happens? God kills two animals, skins them, and clothes them. God, very unmistakably, even as he was driving out our first parents out of the Garden of Eden because of their sins, what is he doing? He's giving them a very demonstrable sign of how their sins are going to be covered by animals and the blood that they shed. Their sins would be atoned and covered and they would be dressed not in the fig leaves of their own doings, but in the skins of animals who paid the penalty of death for them. (laughs) And who does that make you think of? Of course, we would supply the name Jesus. They would just know it as who? The serpent crusher. (laughs) Genesis 3.15, that awesome verse where where, where Jesus is foretold in the words of God to our first parents, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Of course, this is talking about Jesus, this one who would come and bruise or that is crush the head of the serpent. It's this, this redeemer, it's the seed of the woman. The seed of the woman is this, is this amazing theme that you can see all throughout the Old Testament. It's always talking about the seed that is going to come and, re, uh, and put everything right again. And it starts right here, right from the very beginning. So right from the start, Adam and Eve hadn't, hadn't even left Eden yet. And what are we being given? A sacrifice is foretold and a sacrifice is symbolized. It's foretold in this promise that one is going to come and crush the head of the serpent, but also we have this sacrifice amazingly symbolized in these two animals that were sacrificed as a symbol of the atoning sacrifice for the sins of Adam and Eve. You can imagine, Adam and Eve hadn't really seen death before. They hadn't seen animals die. And here God kills two for them. Kills two in order to clothe them in clothing that covers all of their nakedness, that covers all of their shame, that covers all of their faults. And from then on, they're they're given an amazing sign of the way in which that communion and that fellowship and that relationship with God that they lost, how that would be made right again. Be made right through blood. Be made right through something or someone else paying the price for their sin. And of course, as time would move on, and we're going to get into in the weeks to come, how all of these pictures always culminate in Jesus. But we can, we can rightly say from right here through all of time, it always goes back to blood being the operative sort of framework through which our forgiveness is found. And of course, it culminates in Jesus. 
To go back to what the Hebrew writer says in chapter number 10, where he talks about it it would be impossible for all of the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. All of these lambs, all of these sacrifices that populate the Old Testament, they're nothing but symbols and pictures. Types and shadows that the Hebrew writer would, would term it as of the true and better lamb that would come and take away the sins of the world. That, of course, being Jesus. So here from the very beginning, we see that Jesus is the point. He has always been the point. He's always been the center of how God has chosen to reveal himself, of how God has chosen to show how he is going to put everything right again. This world indeed, yes, feels fractured, feels tense, feels fraught with commotion and chaos. Can you imagine how chaotic it was for Adam and Eve in the wake of not only now seeing the first animal die, but then a few years, we don't know how long it took between Cain and Abel, um, and when they were expelled from the garden, but now they're seeing the first human die? Imagine the shockwave of that, that it sends through them. That type of chaos finds its resolution only in one person, and his name is Jesus. And they would go back to the same source of hope that would put them back into right relationship with God, not the fig leaves of their own doing. Remember Adam and Eve, as soon as they sinned, uh, that verse where it talks about how they, they wove their own garments made out of fig leaves, Sort of what Abel was trying to do. It's things that he has tilled from the ground. It's things that he's done on his own. Instead, what? Their shame and their faults are covered by the blood of someone else who died for them. And indeed, that's always been our hope. No matter how out of control the world feels, the source of hope is always the same, and the source of hope is always Jesus. He's at the center of this whole book of the Bible. Not only just this whole book, this whole, this whole Bible, all of its pages, all of, all of the, the books that make up all of its pages. They always bring us back to him. And praise be to God for that. That we have a redeemer. We have a rescuer. And it's not just a, a myth or a figment of our imagination. It's this one who would crush the head of the serpent. We have a picture of that on the cross. And one day soon we're going to see that happen for good and for real. The serpent will be crushed for good. He'll be thrown into a lake of fire. No more to ravage man or this earth. That's what we're all looking forward to. Which is just to say we're still looking forward to this promise being fulfilled in full. It's been fulfilled in part by what Jesus did on the cross. We've been given a foretaste of how Jesus is putting death under his foot. And one day soon, as it says in the book of 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he's going to make all of his enemies his footstool. It's the amazing image that Jesus is going to prop his feet up on top of his enemies because that's how powerful he is. (laughs) They're They're not even a threat to him. They're as threatening as a footstool, as an ottoman in your living room. And that's how powerful this Jesus is, and that's what our hope is. This is what biblical theology is about. It's about seeing Jesus 
as the source of all hope, as the center of all worship. He's the one who brings us into right relationship with God the Father. Praise be to God. Let's pray.